Hi, everybody. I'm Brad Hargraves, the editor and host here at Thesis Driven, and welcome to episode three of the Leader Series. Today, we'll have a conversation with Mary Ann Gilmartin, one of New York's preeminent real estate developers. I'm really excited for this one. But just to give you a little sense of what we've been doing, over the past two weeks, we've had conversations with people who are really doing incredible things at the intersection of real estate, innovation, cities, work, and more. We spoke to Moses Kagan and Rhett Bennett talking about Reseed, their new concept helping real estate developers get off the ground. And last week, we had a really incredible conversation with Dror Poleg, uh, one of my favorite thinkers at the intersection of the future of office, work, and cities. And today, we are going to talk to one of my favorite real estate developers, Mary Ann Gilmartin of MAG Partners. So Mary Ann has built some of the most iconic buildings in New York City, from the New York Times building to Barclays Center, Atlantic Yards. She spent most of her career at Forest City Ratner, uh, one of the biggest real estate developers in New York, where, where she built many of those iconic buildings. Recently, she broke off and started her own group, MAG Partners, which has similarly tackled beautiful, wonderful buildings that really help make New York what it is. Some great residential projects like the Ruby here in Chelsea, which is where we record this podcast. But interestingly, she has taken on a very different project recently. She is working with Kevin Plank of Under Armour to rebuild downtown Baltimore. Very, very different. It would be like Michael Jordan at the height of his fame going and playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, leaving the city of their origin, the city that made them in many ways. So really excited to dive into this today. We are going to talk about that Baltimore project and why it's so exciting. And we're going to talk a lot about New York City and what kind of trajectory the city is on and why Gilmartin is focused on other places um, like Baltimore and not just solely doing everything in New York like she has for most of her career. So very excited for this one. One of absolutely the best developers in New York of our generation. Let's jump in. Marianne, welcome to the Thesis Driven Podcast and Video Series. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's, let, let's dive in. So you're one of the most seasoned developers in New York. You have a great track record in my own city, New York, the New York metro area. Uh, but your newest project is in Baltimore. We're going to talk a little bit about New York, but first I want to talk about what are you doing in Baltimore and why there? I have made my career building in New York City. I am a lifelong New Yorker and have believed for a very long time that if you can ply your craft uh, nearby where you live and work and enjoy your family and friends, it's the best way to do it. Exporting talent and moving around the country for me just never seems super efficient. I think it's partly because of the need to be opportunistic in my business. There are very few developers that have the DNA, the appetite, um, really the, the stomach to take on large scale master plan developments that, that, that happen really through real estate cycles. And so what drew me to Baltimore was a combination of things, the invitation to come in and take a look at something that's a once in a generation type uh, development, uh, in, in many ways, a model perhaps for public private partnerships in the 21st century, a city that needs a lot more love and deserves uh, a shot at, 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 at coming into its own post-industrial Baltimore really never quite figured itself out and has been in a bit in a bit of a way suffering from an inferiority complex, even though it's so proximate to DC and on the Northeast corridor. And so I was drawn to the city because its assets, its fundamental real estate assets are so compelling. The real estate itself is amazing. Um, it's, it's, it's got density and scale, which allow it to really impact the city and lift the city up and the entire region just because it's 235 acres. It's important sponsorship in something like this is super important. So it's it's always starts with the people. I was invited to come down and look at the property by Kevin Plank, who is the founder and brand officer for Under Armour. And he had bought all of this land, uh, hoping that he could help turn the city around. 
and um, then inviting the Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group to come in and be his partner. And when you think about the blue chip quality of Goldman Sachs and um, someone like Kevin Plank, who was really the Dan Gilbert of Baltimore, who flies Baltimore's flag like nobody I've ever, ever come across, those are the ingredients for success. So while the work is mighty, and indeed it is, this is decades long uh, toiling. It's 14 million square feet. This doesn't happen easily or overnight. So I think for me, I was drawn to the fact that this is kind of what I know. And I've leaned into the complicated and the hairy stuff all of my career. I often say if it's easy, I'm probably not that interested. And so the group that I have um, cultivated in my team really um, thrive in complexity. And this is one of the most complex projects I've ever come across in every imaginable way. And in that um, complexity, there was great appeal. And then it just became a sense of would this work while we built a platform and a pipeline in New York. And it turns out it's highly communable. I mean, I'll be in Baltimore uh, for the entire day on, on Thursday. It's so easy. It, it happens to be uh, some of the finest hours of my week when I'm on the train and I'm alone in the quiet car if I can swing it. So I found it to be um, a great uh, combination of um, dynamics, really. And we can talk about New York, but and we're going to get into how complicated uh, New York is. But New York's complicated in a very hard way, in a way that I think is um, is somewhat soul-sucking. And a lot of the joy in the business, um, again, I say that recognizing it's all hard, but it's been joyless uh, for some time now. And I find a lot of joy in Baltimore because the people in Baltimore really want the help. They recognize the value of the built environment in their quality of their city. And above all, they just don't want to be disappointed and forsaken. Whereas in New York, you know, the answer is always no out of the gate. And maybe you can squeeze in a maybe and possibly get a yes. But in Baltimore, they're so open to the kind of work that 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 we do that I find that also very life-giving and appealing, if that makes sense. It it absolutely does. And I, I, I want to get into the soul suckingness of New York development a little later on, but first let's spend it. Let's spend a couple of minutes on this Baltimore project because I'm, you know, regular thesis driven readers know I'm fascinated by placemaking. I write about placemaking a lot, both the development of totally new places and cities, as well as building new neighborhoods and new vibrant places within existing cities. So tell us a little bit more about this community you're looking to build uh, in Baltimore, what are the different components of it and, and what does success look like? Happy to talk about it. So I'll start by saying that it's an assemblage of derelict land that was um, held in disparate ownership, which is great because it means there's virtually no displacement. And so it's on the south side of 95. It's impossible to miss as you drive to D.C. or drive from D.C. to New York. So it's a giant swath of land and it sits on the water. It's, it's hard to right? It's harbor, it's 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 riverfront, yeah. uh, Patapsco River, and it's two and a half miles of of uninterrupted uh, esplanade, and um, it was um, a port for shipping. Uh, paper um, CSX is a major rail line that ran through that area through its heyday, and so it really was um, a very important part of industrial Baltimore. And I think as as industry and commerce changed it just lay fallow and underutilized. And so it was Kevin Plank's idea to start buying up some of the land and to try to make something of it. And he built a distillery there. This goes a, a little bit to his vision and his ability to make place, even though he would say he's a brand builder who sells shirts and sneakers. Um, he decided to bring uh, rye whiskey back to Maryland and he found uh, the aquifer outside of the city of Baltimore and brings the water down from the farm and distills whiskey. And it's called Sagamore Rye. You'll see it now all mm -hmm. over um, the country. And this is a passion of his to really give Maryland back its pride and particularly to, to allow Baltimore to embrace uh, what makes the state and the city great. And so I found that to be fascinating. Like, who does that? And then he built a restaurant called Rye Street Tavern and he brought in the La Conda Verde guys out in New York, the NoHo group to, to run it and I'm thinking this is um, like insane stuff. And then he he bought he decided to build a Pendry Hotel uh, in the city of Baltimore so that he could host people and bring them across uh, the Inner Harbor to his headquarters, uh, the Under Armour headquarters in Locust Point. So he did all of these really imaginative, not necessarily economically um, compelling initiatives 
for his brand and for the city of Baltimore. And I thought this is a guy that I can underwrite to because he's a big thinker. And the work of doing a new brand new place in a brand new neighborhood is not for the faint of heart. Uh, Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs is supposed to be investing in cities where uh, there there are huge challenges and um, there's a need for uh, more equity, uh, diversity and inclusion. And so they were the right partner financially to be in this. So I saw those ingredients as super interesting. The entitlement that they had achieved was 14 million square feet. You build what you want, when you want, where you want. And the beauty of this is if we were to get um, a really compelling proposal to build something like, let's just say, movie studios. Those are typically one-story facilities with lots of loading in and loading out. And imagine in, to do that in a city, it's, it's a terrible waste of floor area ratio, and it doesn't allow you to optimize the density. Well, in, in a master plan like Baltimore Peninsula, you can move that density around anywhere on the whole master plan. And so while, yes, you need to make sure you don't end up with a 65-story building in Baltimore because that's not market, you have such flexibility to respond to a market that's not terribly deep. So what I really liked about the master plan is it was fully entitled. It had inherent flexibility. The land was under single control, which means it is a controlled environment. So if we needed to enhance security, improve access, we have the ability to do that because of the massive amount of control that exists in the landmass. The more aspirational draw, the message I, I'd want to send to your, uh, you know, your, your very sophisticated viewers is that this project, because of its size and its location, I believe has the ability to knit North Baltimore together with South Baltimore, which was divided through the construction of 95 in the 60s. And this highway did, well, when Biden talks about infrastructure and the kind of infrastructure that destroyed cities and separated the haves from the have-nots, this is what happened in Baltimore. And because of this project's sheer size and its location, it's strategically located right next to 95. If you look at it and you pull back and say, let me see the entire uh, county of Baltimore, it's a bullseye. It's in the center. And so what we've tried to do, Brad, is to completely resequence the exit entry ramps experience under the highway so that we build greenways, pedestrian walkways, better exit ramps, better safety for people coming in and out of uh, the city. And so in some ways, again, not to sound lofty, this project is unto itself um, a gateway for a city that doesn't have one. And so I feel very strongly that this work, which again, is going to happen over years, not months, is the work of the day, which is creating critical mass and building parcel by parcel um, new uh, product across every industry type. And then the infrastructure, the tax increment financing, the federal dollars available to fix the highways that ruin cities, all of this is the larger, more um, aspirational and sort of placemaking stuff that I'm mildly obsessed with. I love it. And I'm glad you brought up 95 and the gash that cuts across Baltimore, because when you think about it, you know, it's both a huge opportunity in that this piece of Baltimore is effectively cut off from the rest of the city by 95. So that's an opportunity in that it's kind of a blank canvas, but it's a problem that needs to be solved of how do you reconnect that? So really, really excited, uh, your tackle on that. And let me not, let me not be remiss in telling you what I what what I came into when I stepped in with the team almost two years ago is that they put a million square feet of construction into the ground at the beginning of the pandemic. And they did that in part because they had the tax increment financing and they needed to release the tax dollars that were available to them through the construction of infrastructure. They needed tax paying users, right? So they decided to go forward with 500,000 square feet of office, 500,000 square feet of multifamily, and um, that includes 20% affordable. So when I when I stepped into it, I thought rarely would a New York City builder put a million square feet into the ground without pre-leasing in the face of some of the most challenging economic headwinds we've ever seen. So I thought there was a lot of audacity in that courageous move, but at the same time, that needed to be marketed and branded. And uh, it was proof of concept really for everything that, that needs to follow. So stepping into it, I felt very strongly that we needed to hit the ground running. We needed to rebrand the project. We turned it from Port Covington, which was named after a general, 
um, at the turn of the century into Baltimore Peninsula, which feels like a place people would want to live and really um, plays into Baltimore as a brand. And so we rebranded it and now we're hard at work leasing um, half a million square feet of commercial space a half a million square feet of residential, about 100,000 square feet of retail. And I should just mention that this project in its full manifestation, 14 million square feet, is the central business district of Baltimore. It's the inner harbor. So we're talking about doubling down on the amount of space in the city. And obviously that tells you the potential that this project has to transform the city writ large. Very cool. So I do want to go back to New York now. (laughs) Um, You know, You've built some extraordinary projects in New York, both in your time at Fort City, now at your time on your own at Mag Partners. And so it's in some ways damning to the city that someone of your caliber and track record is saying it feels soul-sucking, I think is the term you used, to develop in New York. Uh, why, Why do you feel that way? And what's your thought on some of the new proposals, you know, Eric Adams coming out with the city of yes, would love to hear kind of how you got to where you are and have how you see the future. So I say that with a heavy heart. And at the same time, I say it with the fact that I'm a hopeless New Yorker and my first love will always be to build in New York. And um, we are what we build as developers and to have the opportunity to participate in even a small way in building the New York Times headquarters or Barclays or New York by Geary, I feel so fortunate to have had a run. And a lot of it's luck, right? Because so much was built in the era that I was coming through the business. Uh, I have a whole philosophy about like, how did I end up here? And I think a lot of my colleagues, when I was graduating, my classmates were rushing into the internet, right? The wild, wild west. And I tripped into this business through a fellowship that Mayor Koch had 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 come up with, which was really one of the city's only recruitment tools to lure people, students, young students into civic service before going in to the private sector. So I kind of tripped into a fellowship and then tripped into economic development and realized that you have the entire city uh, to think about. And at that time in the economic development agency that I was in, which was called the Public Development Corporation, which is now EDC, they literally would sit you down and say, so what do you think we should do with um, the west side of Manhattan? And I would think, well, you're you're talking to me? Like, yeah. what what do I know? And you just had the company of, of people who had so much experience. And of course, you sat across from every major developer. And it was through that experience, um, what I tell young people is always have a plan, but absolutely be prepared for your plan to be upended. And so in the upending of my life plan, as I was on my way to law school, I realized serendipitously that I had real estate development in my veins. And then I hit this great run of opportunities where I worked for a great visionary, Bruce Ratner, who believed if you could dream it and you could defend it, we could probably build it. And I had this run of building amazing things. And you cannot teach what we do. You have to do it by, you have to learn it by doing it. And so if in fact you study the world of development, but you never get your hands dirty and roll up your sleeves and actually build things, you can't possibly have a command of the material. So I say that only because I feel so lucky to have contributed in a small part to the skyline of you know our modern city and what you learn in the doing of it is so much. And it really, you're battle scarred. So I guess I consider myself to be pretty, like I'm a dragon slayer and a plate spinner. That's what I do. So for me to feel like my soul is being sucked, I think it just tells you how the industry is suffering in ways from a lack of leadership in the, in the, in the public domain. I think in some ways, uh, go back to Felix Roatin, go back to the to the fiscal crisis and when the city was was bankrupt and you know the real estate community prepaid its real estate taxes and the great visionaries came together and to, we thought about how to move forward as a city and I think that's a lot harder to do and so I'm not putting any blame at uh, Eric Adams doorstep or the governor's doorstep I think a lot of it has to do with the legislature the city council um, frankly the very far left uh, leaning um, groups that that believe that um, you know nothing is better than than something and um, there's no bravery, there's no audacity, there's also no trust equation between the development community and the communities in which we build. So so I knew all this, of course, you know, in, in all my years of doing this. When I left to start my company, we had a very simple thesis, which is that we want to demonstrate you can build beauty and create value 
not just for pro for partners and investors, but for the communities in which we build, and that the people doing this can look something like the communities in which we're building. And it sounds so simple, right? But I think the company that we're building is trying to create a new model where that trust equation can be restored. And so maybe it's not, you know, I'm not, the, so the soul sucking isn't being put at anybody's doorstep and I'm not blaming anybody, but the confluence of a lot of things, including developers that just rolled over communities for far too long has made it difficult for someone like me to go in and create positive impact and trust with communities and deliver value. And so take that emotional, political, and um, civic dilemma, and then pair it up with the fact that there are no tools anymore. So we have no 421A. We have salt that's plaguing people's willingness to come to New York when they get screwed on deductions. And we've got a dysfunctional legislature in Albany, and we've got um, agencies and departments that are overworked and understaffed. So all of this just creates a malaise. And then throw in a fiscal crisis um, and uh, a pandemic, and a capital market disruption, and you know it bends your mind. Well, a lot of this, I feel, and not to get too in the weeds of New York politics, but I do think it's 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 interesting and somewhat instructive, even for our national listeners, to look at New York as a bit of a case study for when things go wrong and when they go off the rails. You know, ten years ago, I remember a much more conducive environment to development here in the city, uh, in the state. And then it seemed like about five or six years ago, things started to change very quickly. You had, you know, the 2019 rent laws passed, which there was a lot of debate about. Um, then 421A, which is the tax abatement that pretty much every multifamily developer in New York uses is essential for anything to pencil. That expired, didn't get renewed. And you started seeing more uh, very simple rezoning proposals fail to pass, fail to go through ULERP. You know, the, the, the um, Industry City rezoning in Sunset Park was one example. Uh, where do you think things changed? Like, where was the moment that, you know, you look at California, they're passing a raft of pro-housing legislation. You look at Minnesota, Montana. A Republican-led legislature just passed very, very progressive pro-housing legislation. Uh, where do you think things went off the rails for New York and why New York? So as Hemingway says, it happened gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> I think, I think for, for what I would say is having built Atlantic Yards, Pacific Park, Brooklyn, and Barclays, and realizing that there's an enormous case study there, Brad, because what happened along the way, that project, it was built under surveillance on a camera with an entire community um, of people who wanted to stop it. That doesn't mean every community wanted to stop it, but there was a well-mobilized, it wasn't by numbers, it was by um, skill and um, the power of their, their voice through the internet and tactics, right? That allowed 10 years of delay, 35 lawsuits, and one great fiscal crisis, which almost brought the entire thing to its knees. So it finally gets going and it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars over budget. It's, um, it almost brought Forest City down. We had $500 million in the dirt, not a single vertical building to show for it when the fiscal crisis hit and we need to start the arena. And everybody thought we were laughing all the way to the bank. And I fast forward now, the arena has been open for over 10 years and you probably have heard this, but Greenland, the Chinese conglomerate, the state-owned entity that actually I went to find in China to partner with us because of how fatigued our capital was in building this project of 6,430 units of housing, which by the way, is what we wanted, right? The arena was the um, public purpose. The housing was the appeal for us. And I would, I'm gonna say this because I believe it's playing out in real time that all of the process, all of the dysfunction and all of the fact that everybody wanted to agree on everything rang the, the viability, rang the economic viability out of that project. So much so that Greenland is now defaulting yes. on its obligations because the rail yard, and again, I know too much of this. I would need a lobotomy to rid myself of everything in my head around this project. But the cost of that platform upon which a ton of affordable housing has to sit 
is so upside down and out of whack that it will never get done in accordance with the deal construct that is in place today. And I'm going to submit that this is a project that if you research it, will be, will be criticized as being a backroom deal, yet there were over 630 public meetings held on Atlantic Yard's Pacific Park Brooklyn, because I went to most of them. And the fact that there's a tale of two projects, right, that, that communities feel completely, um, I guess, forsaken by this project for which every person that was relocated was either paid fair market value and or given the right to come back into the project at the rent they were paying at the time that the land was, you know, was, was taken. So what I'm saying is, as, as Bloomberg used to say, Central Park was controversial when it was, when it was first you know, discussed. Anything big comes with controversy. And I think this pendulum that has swung so dramatically against progress in the built environment hopefully has to modulate. And you know, I remember California, when New York was easy, I used to fly to California to San Francisco because our company was in 26 states and nobody really knew skyscrapers. So I was out there uh, for, uh, for a competition and I was working with our team in, in San Francisco. I would go to the public meetings. I'm not joking. There was a section for people that, that you know, were allergic to deodorant, and then there were people who didn't have allergies. Like I was thinking, I come back to LaGuardia and kiss the the ground. It <laughs> felt like it was it was just so completely left of left. And I think you couldn't get anything done in California for a really long time. And now, as you indicate, things are starting to come around now, and they realize they need the housing. So, do we have to go through? pain, suffering, and a chilling effect in New York City for people to realize that without a tax program, this housing crisis is not going to resolve itself. It is only going to get worse. Right. It's more, how bad does the pain have to get? And, you know, I'm working on a, a thesis-driven letter in a bit, just looking at the case of rent-stabilized landlords in New York, because that is a rough situation right now. And there is absolutely no consensus on how that gets solved. And there's tens of thousands of vacant rent stabilized units right now that can't financially be renovated and rent and rented out. So it's a very tough situation. I mean, do you think like something like an Atlantic Yards Barclays Center could happen in today's political environment in New York? It's interesting because I, you know, I went to Fordham and I, I've been thinking about places where something of scale could happen that could really help um, a borough and help a city and help a community. And, you know, Fordham Road is still really confused. There was an upzoning. It never really came to pass. And I was thinking about could something like what we did in Brooklyn ever happen in a place like the Bronx today? And I think I'm a little jaded. I think that um, my hope is the following. I, we sat with the governor last week because we had the, the Golden Apple panel at you know NYU's thing, and, and we got an audience with her. And I was taken by her ability to forge forward and her willingness to say to us, I am going to shoot for singles and doubles. I'm not going to swing for the fences because I'm not going to be able to get it done. But here's what I will do. I will use my powers and I will do a workaround like I did in Gowanus. And I said to myself, here's the governor needing to do a workaround for an economic development agenda in New York City. And even as it relates to immigrants and um, allowing people to work, she's got 40,000 jobs in the state that she wants to give to immigrants and she can't because of the log jam in, in uh, Washington. And I thought to myself, whenever I'm exhausted, I'm just gonna think of the governor because it makes you realize that, you know, I'll stay addicted to hope as long as someone like that is in office that wants to try. And I feel like if I had an idea and if I, if I, if I came up with something creative, she is willing to bring her powers of uh, the IDA and, and, and ownership, right, to do an overlay so that something of scale could actually be done because you could introduce 421A mirrored benefits. But that is utterly exhausting to think that that's what she would have to do to build anything of scale. But the good news is she's willing to do it. And maybe that's the beginning of making it clear that progress will not be stopped and it's going to just take a lot more time and be a lot harder. So I, I had a lot of respect for 
her, um, her willingness to say this and tell us that we should go out. We should not stop trying to come up with a 421A compromise and good cause eviction, and that we need to give her something to work with because she alone can't do it. And so uh, with all that in mind, I guess I want to believe it's possible, but you need body armor. You need um, an unbelievable sense of urgency and at the same time, remarkable patience to dabble in that space. Yes. Just uh, for for those of our listeners who may be unfamiliar, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, uh, in early 20, 2023, released a package of housing reforms uh, that included very tenant-friendly reforms like good cause eviction protections, also brought back 421A tax abatement we mentioned earlier, and included strong incentives for suburbs to build more housing. A lot of New York City suburbs, particularly Long Island suburbs, Nassau County, Suffolk County, have built very, very, very little housing despite having good transit connections uh, over the past couple decades. You know, the state just sunk uh, $12 billion into the East Side Access Project, which opened up even more rail access to Long Island. But a lot of those train stations are surrounded by single-family homes. Sadly, Hochul's package of housing reforms failed in the legislature. No one was able to agree to it. Um, I haven't heard a great explanation for why it failed. NIMBY suburbanites, socialist, city legislators. Uh, Marianne, do you have any, any sense of you know what, what went wrong there? I think in some instances it's laced with a level of, you know, don't come into our neighborhood because you're not a homeowner. Um, you might have an affordable housing component, and that's going to drive our property values down. Um, yet this is what transit-oriented development ought to be. And when you when you take any of the trains, whether you go Metro North North or you go to, through the Long Island Railroad, and you think about all the opportunity that someone like Scott Reckler has been early to recognize, um, but the cost of housing in the city, it should push outward, and people should hop on the train and get into the city in record time. But communities that are that are accustomed to home ownership, a driveway, uh, and I guess a school district where there isn't maybe a ton of diversity, this just seems to like run up against uh, the core values of some of these communities, and and, it, and it's troubling. It gets to this idea that you know, as a country, are we really New York City, you know, California coastal cities, and uh, that's you know one part of the country, and then there's everybody else. I'd like to think not, but when you hear stories about this, you recognize that we've got a lot of work to do to speak with one voice on what makes um, cities uh, sing and what makes communities vibrant. I am mindful of what you said, which is that some of the red states uh, have become not only pro-business, but really open to development in a way where housing, including diverse housing stock, will be built. And that's because the workforce needs a place to live. And how is it possible that the people who keep our city safe, who teach our children, who, who put out our fires, can't afford to live in the dense urban environment? And that's okay. Yeah. It's wild. I do want to touch on one project you are working on in New York City before we move on, uh, the Ruby just down the road from our studio here in Chelsea. Uh, you know, you decided to go high-end rental with this one instead of condo. Would love to hear a little bit about the story and, uh, you know, what, what got you excited about our neighborhood? Uh, so I think because I grew up in the business with, uh, with the family. Uh, the Ratner family, you know, this idea that if you're a multifamily builder in New York City, uh, it's the product you hold forever because it's impossible to replace. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's an annuity. If you get greedy and raise your rents, you don't rent units. But if you lower your rents and you respond to the market, you will rent your product. And that is why the Dan Brodskys of the world, the TF Cornerstones, these are New York City dynasty families, um, don't sell their multifamily rentals. And so in the way that I was brought through the business, I thought if I could build multifamily and I could hold that on, hold on to that for generations to come, that's my little dent in the universe for my, for my family, right? So again, this is um, a Herculean task, of course, and I have no scale, but what I had is this ambition. And I also don't get particularly excited about condos because I think I call them cowboy developers can build condos because there's always money that'll, that'll allow you to build them. You have to hit the market exactly right 
or else you're sitting with product that's too big and too expensive to convert to rental. And I just feel like condos are a great allocator of high land costs. So I'll do it. But I think what makes the city interesting, a city that 65% of which rents apartments is to create rental product. And, um, you know, the New York Times just did a podcast uh, recently about to rent or own. And they talk about this great American dream of owning and how people feel shame about not owning a home when they get to a certain place in their life. And they turned the entire economic proposition on its head. And the guy who's actually been advocating for, he's the guy that created the calculator for the New York Times about whether you should rent or buy. And he basically introduced all new considerations, not just interest rates, about why renting actually is compelling. And so um, I believe in rental, and I think it's not just um, seeding home ownership, but it's what makes New York City great. And so this site that I came across is the first site under my own company's uh, brand was an amazing site that every developer wanted. And I was fortunate enough to make a deal with the Gottesman family. And it's a project of scale. It's 480 units, but it's a two tower scheme. So to be honest, I wanted to introduce something that was um, maybe a little different than the tower in the sky, the glass and steel, this idea that Chelsea is such an amazing neighborhood and this mid-block experience where with a great architect like Rick Cook, you could create a home. And so we set out to do two towers with a garden in the middle, an outdoor pool that is not covered at the roof. So you could sit on a perch really, um, you know, in the, in the sky, uh, not, not a hundred stories up, but, you know, 28 stories up. And so the, the site's just a beautiful site across from FIT. If you know, New York, you know, that that street 28th street has been under development in, in a serious way for the last few years, including a massive, um, improvement by FIT itself. So this is a great institution that's anchored that community. And so every bit about this project was intoxicating for me. And so a great architect like Rick Cook helped us put together a great building at a great time. And then the pandemic hit and it is a ground lease. And uh, this is again, an audience that understands that, you know, there's nothing like fee ownership, but you weren't getting that site on 28th street between seventh and eighth Avenue, unless you signed a 99 year ground lease. So what turned out to be somewhat challenging became impossible to finance during COVID when everybody believed that New York was done and nobody was coming back to the city and we were out in the financial markets. We had five lenders, um, you know, in the first week of March and we had zero lenders in mid-March of 2020 and it was frightening. And again, a tribute to our partners, the capital partners who basically agreed that if we could find the capital, we should build. And we put the thesis together that we've all lived through and, you know, witnessed um, challenges and trials and tribulations for New York. And we've read New York's obituary over and over again. And we believed that if we could build this during the pandemic, when very little was getting built, um, that we would have something that when people came back to the city, it would be um, in rarefied space. And so Madison, um, Madison is a lender. It used to be considered a lender of last resort, but um, Josh Deacon's uh, company, Madison, put the loan on the property. So again, non-conventional lender, not a bank. Uh, he himself as a developer understood the value proposition and we were able to build Ruby through one of the most challenging times in our city. Um, we also decided as a company that we are not naming these buildings after our children. Uh, that's what a lot of developers do. And so uh, we decided that we would build a brand and name buildings after uns unsung New York heroes that were women. And so Ruby Bailey is, uh, was a Jamaican beater and she uh, was largely unrecognized for her contributions to fashion and to uh, the fashion community. And so we went to her estate and we said we wanted to name this building after her. And we started a scholarship in her name at FIT. And there'll be a cornerstone in the in the sidewalk that honors Ruby Bailey. And we're just so privileged to have been able to, to really name the building after this amazing New Yorker. And every other building that we are now you know, putting together will have some ability to recognize the unrecognized uh, in New York City um, industry. It's an amazing story. And what a bet doing that when everyone was betting against New York, when you saw an article every week that New York was dead. And now people are coming back. They have come back. And there is so little rental inventory out there today. I don't, I, I don't know what the rental vacancy rate is now, but it, it, it's, it's got to be 1%, 2%. 
it's under 3%. And it's also about what the future pipeline is offering, which is something um, ridiculously low, like 13,000 units across the entire city of Manhattan, which is uh, supposed to, it it could tolerate over 50,000 units a year. And we're dealing with um, under 20. And that is the crisis that we're on the brink of, of watching unfold. And it's interesting, Brad, because if we had if we'd gotten weak need and we hadn't built when we built Ruby, I imagine what would have happened is, and we'll talk a little bit about the other two buildings that I'm, I'm building now, um, this 421A exploration ended up uh, when developers decided to start and the capital markets were disrupted. It's a question of how big is your building and how much how much timeline are you eating up to build it and what's your uh what's your uh cushion against the deadline because if you don't have the building complete by the middle of 2025 it's game over there's no tax deal right so i think ruby would have suffered uh the demise of its own being because it would have been challenging to build a complicated 480 unit building in time for the expiration of the 421A, you know, the footing has to go in and then the building has to be complete. And that's what I'm facing on these two other sites. And fortunately they're 200 units each. So I will get the job done, but um, these are the buildings that could, I mean, it's like a little engine that ticks along and it, it otherwise would have been another day at the office. Again, nothing's easy, but if I were to tell you that a 200 unit multifamily building today in Manhattan, getting it financed, getting it built, dealing with the footing and, and, and wrapping the risk around the benefit of 421A, getting all that to work was as challenging as building the $1 billion arena called Barclays Center. And I'm not exaggerating. It's wild. (laughs) And it's going to have a chilling effect on any other developer who doesn't have your connections to capital, your track record. You know, how do you start as a developer today in a place like New York without those advantages? I think it's not impo- I think it's impossible, and and I think even those of us that are um, old hands at it are just um, not not able to rationalize between interest rate creep, um, the fact that there aren't the same group of lenders and investors that that are out there anymore. They're all on the sidelines, and then all of this anti development um, sentiment and a lack of a tool a toolkit to do what we do, you will see very little. And I would say to you that the two buildings, one we closed last week uh, on 50th and 2nd Avenue, the other is knock on wood closing in December. We're using equity to to keep building, right? Because we're against this deadline. These two buildings, I believe are one of five multifamily, one of five multifamily buildings in Midtown that will come online as a result of um, the 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 sunsetting of 421A. So imagine that there are five buildings only, and we're two of them. And that is a sad, it's very, very good for the marketability of the two buildings that I've capitalized, right? But it is a, it is a terrible, terrible diagnosis for what the future of multifamily looks like in New York. So we've spoken a lot about residential and the housing situation, but obviously, you in your career haven't just built housing. You've built a lot of office too. Um, would love to hear your take there. I mean, would you build office today given everything that's uh, that's going on in the office market? And do you think that's going to come back at any point? So I'll begin by saying that the office market's really um, complex today. And if you were to dissect it, uh, you know, as almost an academic exercise, it would be fascinating. When um, you look at the number of transactions that have been um, inked at uh, at over $100 a foot in certain key buildings where there's uh, clearly a flight to quality, you would say in that cohort, it is a healthy market. It's a healthy market that I would submit. We don't even know how healthy it is, Brad, because of what's going on in the broader macroeconomic world, tenants don't want it advertised that they're growing, they're expanding. So there's like this crazy dynamic where where a company will take space, pay up in rent, and then put an absolute NDA on anybody talking about it, the brokers, the landlords. So that's kind of a crazy thing, which we've never really encountered before. So there is there is growth, there is prosperity, there is real rent, and there is high occupancy in the best of the best in New York. And that's, that's at once a sign of hope. And it's, um, it's an unfortunate, um, 
reality for the B and C class buildings that I think many of which will never ever come back into being office space. So I do think people are coming back. I think more people want to come back in a very different way and buildings that can adapt themselves and can become the workplace of the future, I think will be fine, but they'll require a lot of capital. And we know that cash is king right now and capital does not flow it. And so these new buildings um, that, that actually have the ability to create these third spaces, these common areas, these areas where both deliberate and um, spontaneous collisions of human thinking will happen. It's a lot of the things I think we knew pre-pandemic, but now it's, a, it's an absolute mandate. You know, access to light and air, outdoor space, community areas, uh, less enclosed singular offices, and a recognition that this is probably going to happen three or four days a week. And I don't think that that is a death knell for New York City's um, office market. But I do think that there's this giant conundrum about well, what happens to all the BC product that will never, ever prosper as fully occupied office buildings. I, that was going to be uh... A question. I'm not sure there's an answer of what happens to these, all these buildings. I mean, you go a little bit north of the Ruby into the garment district, into Hell's Kitchen, and it's block after block after block of Class B and C office buildings. So let's take that. Yeah, let's take that and then like look at the housing crisis and say, okay, well, shouldn't these things be thought about together? So if there's 120 million square feet of convertible office space out of the 450 million square feet in New York. There's a lot of naysayers that are saying there's no way this is all convertible. And it's probably not. But even if half of the 120 was, we're talking about 60 million square feet. Yeah. If 60 million square feet were given the benefit of zoning um, relief and the city, and this is where I have hope that Mayor Adams will be brave and be audacious and say, okay, I'm going to allow for conversions and I'm going to give the zoning relief, the setback, the rear yard uh, in these neighborhoods where people want to live and work, right? So it's the 15-minute city where you live and work and everything you care about is within 15 minutes of your home. If you believe that New York has the ability to have that kind of a, of a mixed-use environment, which, which we know exists, then some of these in neighborhoods, let's look at Great Jones, if you have a, an office building in, in that area or in the garment district where people do want to live there and you're given the zoning relief as a developer and you are not foisted upon with unrealistic affordable housing requirements, right? Because until there's a 421A deal, we can't convert those buildings and say, okay, I'll give you city of New York 30% affordable. So I'm hopeful that the, the mayor leads by saying, we're going to allow you to convert and we're going to let you do market rate housing. And then when the state gets its act together and the legislature realizes it needs affordability and you layer in a 421A, maybe you come up with an actual conversion tax benefit as well. But I think that there's the answer has to be that these buildings either there's an incentive to take them down and to start anew or there is a deep incentive to convert them. And this of course means that all the lender dynamic and all the exposure that exists on those buildings today needs to get reconciled or really, really ugly. And I don't think the ugliness has even begun to set in. No, I mean, even in these conversion scenarios, the equity still gets wiped in a lot of cases. And that's that hasn't percolated through the system yet. And that, that, that's a barrier as well here. And we know that 40% of the city's tax base comes through real estate right. and um, uh, a large percent of that is commercial property. So this gets back to the thesis that we were talking about earlier, which is, does it have to become so brutal? Does the city have to suffer in a way where it's, it's, it's not sustainable and therefore politicians are forced to the table to take us out of what will then be a true crisis? Agreed. So I'd like to move to the lightning round. Uh, these are okay. quick questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, so quick answers, one on to the next. Uh, first one, uh, what's one piece of advice you would give a real estate developer starting up today? Don't be intimidated by everything I've said on this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's, it's I thought it was best. going to be don't start in New York. 
It's the best job in the planet. If you, I mean, I, I think about what a developer does and you are just exposed to and have uh, the ability to influence and impact so many aspects of what it takes to build. And let me put it this way. Imagine that a lot of us push buttons and move paper. This is not a lightning round answer. I'm sorry. In the scenario where you build, your toiling is the manifestation of something that ends up with something concrete and physical. And that sticks around for a really long time. It's amazingly gratifying. When you wanna teach your children what you do every day and you actually build things, like building things are amazing. I build people, uh, I'm building a company, but we also build buildings. And so there's nothing better. And so maybe you don't start in New York, but do not let all of the doom and gloom and per and all of the, um, the, the sort of soul bearing that I've done on this podcast uh, intimidate you such that you don't go into the business. It's a great business. I love it. What is one, name one developer or entrepreneur you're watching really closely and why? Uh, so I'm obsessed with AI and exactly what, you know, what's going to happen with um, Sam Altman. And like, I'm wondering if we're going to write movies and books of, around him as a villain or, or a, an amazing human. And so I have to tell you, it's, it's got a lot of juicy components to it, but we, we didn't really get to talk about AI's impact on, on real estate, but it, it should be massive and the disruption is yet to come. And so I, I would say that that is um, someone I'm watching very closely. So maybe a related question. If we're recording this podcast in the 2030s, what are we talking about and why? I think we're talking about the environment and hopefully we're talking about the way in which, um, you know, sick buildings uh, got better and improved uh, the life of a city and, and the people who live in it. And so I think, again, AI has massive implications for sustainability and resiliency and infrastructure. But I think that we are talking about global cities that have embraced uh, technology, sustainability and resiliency. If you could change one real estate related law or policy, what would it be? It would be 421A today. <laughs> yes, that's a big one. It's a blocker for a lot of things. Um, what's one city or place you would bet on? New York. Love it. And what's your favorite app on your home screen? Uh, I'm obsessed with Pocket. And it has to do with the fact that I never get to read everything I want to read. And so the fact that there's a place to deposit things I always want to go back to, things I've read that I love. And so Pocket's been a bit of a savior for me. It's a psychological savior. It's a time saver. And it's a great organizer for me. So I, I really like it. I think it's really clever for people who dabble in lots of different places and want to create one depository for all the things they want to either save or go back to. Marianne. One of the best developers in New York of our generation. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, appreciate your time. I wish you luck. I'm really, again, excited to keep watching you and following you. Your work is very important to our work. And so I want to thank you for that and tell you it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.